We know what needs to be done, and we know it can be done. So the question is how are we going to get it done, and obviously that's a lot of the discussion at COP. One of the pod I like listening to podcasts, and one of the podcasts I've been listening to recently, it's a couple of years old now, it's called Mothers of Invention, and I would recommend it. There are dire warnings that New South Wales will be hit by increasingly extreme weather. 2015 was the hottest year since climate records began. Your show this July was the single hottest month in recorded history. Australia sweltered through its hottest spring on record. Climate change is now affecting every country on every continent. It's the rate that's a great concern. And what do you want that rate down to? Oh, it's human activity. We have everything we need. Some still doubt that we have the will to act. But I say... The will to act is itself a renewable resource. Hello and welcome to Climactic, the podcast by and for the climate community. The theme of this episode could easily be coming attractions, which a wise man just recently reminded me is a pretty terrible thing to have in a podcast, and that in podcasting best practice, we try to avoid time-sensitive references and instead produce evergreen content. Well, fair enough, and that is true 99% of the time. But today, we're on the road to COP25, which, as I record this, is still coming up, but in just a couple of short weeks, it will be in the rearview mirror. So think of this as a first draft of history. What were people thinking in the lead-up to the most recent and potentially most momentous Conference of the Parties by the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the 25th such summit, this year taking place, at least as we know at the moment, in Madrid, Spain. One of our very own will be attending this conference as a youth representative of Australia, and you'll hear from her very shortly. To lead you into this fantastic panel discussion recently held at Monash University by the Monash Energy Club, but before we get to that, we have one more timely reminder about another coming attraction. This one is a rally, the Rally for Life. Here's a message from one of the organizers on why this rally is so important and why, if you can, you should absolutely take part. The Nature for Life Rally on the 28th of November is a collaboration of environment groups and communities from all over Victoria to call for a step up in protection for nature across our state. Our national parks, our forests, grasslands, rivers, beaches, oceans, native plants and animals against the threats that they face, whether it's from global warming or from inappropriate uses and developments. This rally is different to many of the other rallies that we've seen in the limelight lately, which have all been about climate. This rally is focused on nature, the places and the wildlife that we all love and that we all want to protect in our own backyard. The Nature for Life rally will be a peaceful rally and as much as we want to create urgency and the need for the Andrews government to act in this term of government, it really is about the importance of bringing people together to protect wildlife and the places that we love. There is an incredible opportunity right now that the Andrews government has at its fingertips and it's the opportunity to protect the forests in the central west of Victoria by creating a series of new national parks and reserves and they have to make a decision by February this year. So that is one thing that we're going to be calling on at the Nature for Life rally on Thursday the 28th of November, 12pm at Parliament House. To urge for a step up in the protection of nature across Victoria, there are many things that you can do. One is to come to the rally, to gather your troops. Second is to promote it. Jump onto 
www.vnpa.org.au forward slash rally. There you will find information, Facebook events to promote it and share throughout all your networks. Come along, bring your banners, your signs and ask for your special place or your wildlife that you want to be protected. And you can also find that link in the show notes in the community corner section. Thank you to Shannon Hurley for sending that in. And now here's Cree McNamara with an introduction to today's episode. Hey guys, it's Cree here again, and I'm taking you with me on my journey towards the United Nations Conference of the Parties at the end of this year. I'd like to acknowledge that today's episode was recorded on the land of the Kulin Nation, of the First Peoples of Australia. I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. As the Climactic Collective, we're really interested in current affairs that are taking place in the environmental space. The United Nations COP is when the nations who are a part of the UNFCCC, which is the United Nations Framework Convention for Climate Change, come together to discuss all issues related to climate change and the transition towards a low-carbon economy. Members and delegates of the COP discuss and assess the measures taken by nation-states and ultimately review everybody's commitments towards the Convention for Climate Change. This was adopted back in 1992, which was before I was born. So I think this just goes to show how complex and difficult these negotiations are to be able to reach an agreement on. You may have heard in the last few weeks that this year's COP, which was supposed to be held in Santiago, Chile, was cancelled by President Sebastián Piñera. Due to civil unrest and demonstrations by the people of Chile, the government felt it was no longer safe to hold the conference. I think it's really important for us to deeply consider how Chile's people continue to struggle today under a government who they do not feel is serving them in the best way possible. The location of the COP was swiftly offered to take place in Spain, which is somewhat of a relief to know that the progress set to take place at this meeting can still go ahead. But I just think it's important to bear in mind the courage of those in Chile standing up for what they believe in. In regards to the COP, there's been a lot of conversation about Australia's engagement in these high-level intergovernmental conferences, such as the specific focuses on this year's COP, carbon trading, working out the intricacies of Article 6 of the Kyoto Protocol, which relates to carryover credits, and how all of these issues will enter into our own lives. Are we really doing enough here in Australia? Can we do more? How can we do more? Today I'm here at Monash University, where the Monash Energy Club is with a panel of experts on all matters related to the COP. I'd like to thank Peter and the team at Monash Energy Club for inviting me along as part of the Climactic Collective. And with that, I'll let him take it away. All right, everyone, I hope you can hear me. Welcome to our event, inaugural event organized by Monash Energy Club. My name is Peter Lucis. I'm a PhD student at Faculty IT and also happy to represent today Monash Energy Club. And since we launched only less than two months ago, I'll just quickly explain what we are doing. So we really saw that there is sort of gap between the industry, Monash Research and all the students. So we thought really how can we actually promote and inform about how the research is being done, for example by Monash Energy Institute, or also inform about the Net Zero project and other. And to really show how can we provide some other opportunities and see how students can apply their skill sets when they are seeking for a job. And we are really focusing on organizing field trips for students, or a renewable energy camp is coming up. We also organized a site visit to AGL headquarters. And now we are here today to really talk a bit about the climate. And I would also like to say thank you for, to Monash Energy Institute and Specialist Region for supporting us from day one to really make this initiative happen. 
and we hope to grow soon. And also I have to acknowledge Susie Ho, the course coordinator from one Masters in Environment and Sustainability for supporting this event. And although we are trying to be multidisciplinary and involve students, both undergrads and postgrads and from different faculties, somehow we have more more of her students and I'm not sure if it's just the students who are more active or is, is it her who makes these students more active. Anyway, she's not here today but thanks Susie for supporting us. And also I have to mention that this event will be recorded and you will later be able to <coughs> share with your moms and dads and other people that they record from the seminar. All right, and why I mentioned actually moms and dads because I thought how can I actually start this conversation and until recently, I could never engage in talking about climate change with, with my mom. Until last summer, where like I come from Europe, which is from far north, not too far from Polar Circle. And last summer, we experienced 14 tropical nights, which means that the temperature stays about 25 degrees at night. And this was the first time my mom actually approached me and asked, like, hey, is this is the new normal? Is this is what we should expect now? And this made me think that we actually, sooner or later, we will get everyone on this journey to really try and think about and talk about climate change and try to reduce our emissions and move to low carbon economy. Having said that, also we know that recent reports, for example, United Nations report, United in Science, show that even if we agree to um, reach all the targets set out under the Paris Agreement, we are still short to maintain a temperature rise below 2 degrees Celsius. So there is a lot of action that we need to be done. And I think that's why the motto for COP25 is time for action, because really all the parties have to take up more effort if we are really serious about that. But what about me? This, is all, this will be only my second COP that I'm attending, but we have invited some, what I would call senior coppers with a lot of more experience to talk about these complicated issues. And with that, I would like to invite someone who I know for about a year, who I know as a very passionate and committed people to really bring us through this change to energy transition and also very committed to engage everyone from industry, from university and after all, students. And I'm talking about Chloe Monroe. Please, oh. over to you. Yeah. Well, thank you. Um... And really, I'm just here as the moderator, so what I'm hoping is that we'll have quite an engaged conversation. There's a fantastic panel here, so we'll, I'll start by asking them to present a few ideas around some core questions. While they're talking, I hope you'll be thinking of your questions, but I'm also interested in the delegation and people who are on the delegation and what they might be thinking on the same questions. So I might just ask before, before we plunge in, for a show of hands, who in the room is actually going to be attending as part of the Monash delegation? Fantastic. Right. Well, let, well I may put you on the spot. No, I'll say no, so your name is? Juga. Juga. And? Remy. Remy. Great. Fantastic. Well, I'll come back to you later so that you're not... Oh, the, sorry. Did I miss another hand? Sorry. Georgia. Georgia. Great. I'm liking the gender balance here. <laughs> so that's fantastic. <laughs> Get back in your box, old man. <laughs> but I mean, it's one thing that's actually, I think, striking about climate action, that you do see a lot of women engaged in it in ways that perhaps we haven't seen in other sectors of the economy. But we'll come, we'll come back to that. So I don't think I, I really need to set the scene. You will all have been following the news of, of the issues being experienced in Chile and consequently in having already moved from Brazil to Chile, the decision, the president's decision that it wouldn't be 
feasible to hold COP in COP25 in Santiago and fortunately Madrid had a large venue available and stepped up and so the COP will be going ahead but perhaps it's some complications associated with it but it's a significant event this year. Time for Action is a great slogan. I think we're all feeling this every time a new report comes out it just underscores the urgency and so I don't think anybody in this room needs persuading of that but I think it's always good to start with just setting the scene and, and painting the background because the question I'd like to put to the panel first really is why is this, in, this COP important and how do you frame up what a, a COP and this one in particular stands for. So I'd, I'll, I'll introduce the speakers we go. I'll start, start with on, on my left Anna Malis. Anna I think most of you will know she, she works for Climate Works and has, has a focus on the policy implications of, of the work of that organisation. Previously, she was an assistant director at the Climate Change Authority and has had a long history in climate policy. Before that, in the non-government sector, she was director of the Climate Action Network Australia. She's worked in different parts of government. Climate Change Authority obviously is part of the federal government. You work for the Victorian government. You work for governments in, in, in London on environment and sustainable development issues and also and I think this is a particularly important connection the experience in international development and urban con conservation and that's all underpinned by some pretty serious qualifications in forestry ecological sciences and urban regeneration so as somebody who can kind of set the scene and, and see this in a broad context I can't think of anybody better to introduce so Anna over to you thank you Just so before I start, I will do just do a bit of my kind of how did I personally get obsessed with climate policy? And really, I started off in very, very practical nature conservation projects. So working in London about small green spaces and getting people from the community to make a difference in their very local area. And I realized that you could make more difference through policy. And besides, I like numbers, I'm a bit wonky, it's, it's a perfect fit for me. So I moved from kind of practical on-the-ground work into looking at policy. Once you start looking at environment and sustainability, it was very, very clear that climate is one of the key issues within sustainability, and hence I kind of wiggled my way through various international development and other jobs to purely focus on climate and despite my accent, I actually, both my parents are Australian, hence why I'm back in Australia. So I'm doing the scene setting. So, you know, one of the questions is, are we globally and in Australia on track to meet our targets under Paris? And you probably, you know, no spoiler, but the answer is no, not really. So a bit of hope, though, that, you know, Peter already mentioned the United in Science report and the world can still reach a 1.5 degree goal with a certain number of hopeful caveats. But we're not on track at the moment. We need to do far, far more. It was clear from that report that ambition needs to be increased fivefold to reach that goal. And broadly speaking, the world needs to halve its emissions from about now until 2030. Now, the world has not been on track to, you know, even peak at the moment. Like there was a brief moment when it looked like maybe we were and then, nope the emissions have gone back up. So the next 10 years also have to be transformational. There is no question we have to get our skates on. If we, the world doesn't change its ambition, by the end of the century, we're on track to round about three degrees. 
And given the work that Knighted in Science just did by the UN, it's clear that even the difference between 1.5 and 2 degrees is massive. So the difference between, you know, 1.5 and 3, it's even bigger. And you are talking about existential crises. So coral, tropical coral reefs under two degrees or more are very unlikely to exist by the end of the century. And that's quite, you know, that is cataclysmic and it's highly depressing. But we still can get there. There are relatively easy to implement, in some ways, solutions technically that would get us a very, very long way to closing the gap. Things like clean energy, which, you know, sitting in Australia, we have enormous clean energy resources. And the last decade has seen a lot of advances. So generally speaking, attitudes have shifted towards action overall. And industry is starting to step up in a way that 10 years ago, it was much more patchy. And some of the technologies have got more cost effective. That infographic is from United in Science. And what that report does is pull expertise from across sort of global organizations like the World Meteorological Organization, UN Environment Programme, and sort of create a, th a synthesis of what we know so far. One of the things we know so far is that there's a big gap. Now, there's two gaps that people talk about. So one is, if you look at the current policy scenario line, which is the second dot down, that is, if the world keeps doing what it's doing now, this is what scientists think will broadly happen to emissions. And so that's the second one down. And, that's, and the difference between the top one and the next one down is that the world is doing things. In Australia, we have a renewable energy target. The EU is doing a whole heap of things. They've got emissions trading scheme. It's not perfect, but it, it bends that line from the no policy down to current. The difference between that kind of current policy scenario and the next two, which are unconditional nationally determined contributions and the conditional ones, is the fact that, like in Australia, our current policy does not get us to what we've said is our target in 2030. And quick summary of the difference between unconditional and conditional. Some countries have said, whatever happens, we'll reach this particular target. But they've then added, but if you know, we get funded to change the way we do our electricity sector, then we're prepared to step up as well and we can have a stricter target. So that's kind of that difference. And then the lines we actually want to get to is that under two degrees of global warming or better yet, under 1.5. And so you've got the gaps <coughs> which are between what people have committed to in their targets and the goal, the two, you know, 1.5 under one, under two. And then you've got the gaps between the targets and what people are actually doing. So in Australia, Net zero emissions in line with the Paris Agreement. So for a developed country, that's got to be net zero by at least 2050, if not earlier. Earlier if you want 1.5. Then this is technically possible in Australia. Our work's shown it. Other people like University of Melbourne with their um, energy transitions hub, they've shown similar estimations. It's technically possible. And the different coloured wedges are all the different sectors. So you can see where things need to change. Pretty sure orange is residential energy and um, power. Sorry, dark orange is power, light orange is residential. And you can see they pretty much trail out to nothing. And then one of the ways in which we reach net zero is the fact we've got huge opportunities for the land sector. So you balance off 
you know, residual emissions with the land sector. On the right-hand side, you've got, OK, it roughly in line with the Paris Agreement, which is well below two degrees. We've got to get to at least a 55% reduction from 2005 levels, which is our target baseline, by 2030. But then you can see the line that's kind of horizontally dribbling across. That is what we estimated now nearly two years ago Australia's policies would do. And that was even taking into account two things that the government then didn't put into place, which was vehicle emission standards and the National Energy Guarantee. So Australia is nowhere close to the pathway it needs to be on, but it is technically possible. So those are my slides, so the kind of setting the scene, but and just really to say that, you know, it looks pretty dire, but the possibilities are there. And in a nutshell, why we go to COP is because the possibilities are there and having those discussions globally help us to get there. But I'm sure we'll come back to that. We will. Well, that's brilliant. Thank you. And I mean, it couldn't be clearer, really, could it? We know what needs to be done and we know it can be done. So the question is how we're going to get it done. And obviously that's a lot of the discussion at COP. One of the pod- I like listening to podcasts, and one of the podcasts I've been listening to recently, it's a couple of years old now, it's called Mothers of Invention, and I would recommend it to all of you. It's, it's uh, Mary Robinson, who is one of the great women leaders in the world, and a friend of hers talking about mostly women, women's engagement in climate action. And there's, a, there's a great episode which is about the money and really making the point that if you can get to the money, you can get a lot of change. And uh, so she, they're talking about sanctions, disinvestment, all of those things. But more constructively, there's also how does the money positively get invested? And that, I hope, is a useful segue. <laughs> it's the best I could do to our next speaker, who is um, Owen Jackson, who is the Director of Policy at the Investor Group on Climate Change. So I think it'll be particularly interesting to hear from Owen about what investors, you know, what's important to investors and how can investors be, as they must be, one of the main motiv- uh, motors really of change. So Erwin is also a person who has enormous depth of experience in policy. And previously to this role, he, he was a climate and change and energy advisor, senior advisor at Environment Victoria. He spent a period at as strategy director of the Energy Transition Hub, which I'm also involved in and which Anna's mentioned, and very significantly spent a decade as deputy chief executive of the Climate Institute. So a person who's certainly up to his armpits in climate policy, but brings this very particular perspective, which perhaps isn't one that everyone in the room is so familiar with from investors. So over to you, Owen. Thank you, Chloe. So thanks for the invitation. And just as a way of introduction, um, for people who don't know who the Investor Group on Climate Change are, probably a lot of you have superannuation. My members are the big super funds and also the asset managers who work for those super funds. The entire industry in Australia is about $2.7 trillion, so you know, nearly twice the size of the Australian economy. And my members basically have $2 trillion of assets under management. We're not banks. We're not insurers. We're a particular part of the finance chain which is about long delivering returns to you when you retire. And that's the core function of, of what the superannuation industry is trying to do. So why are we worried about climate change? From first principle, like if you guys are going to retire in 2050 or 2060, investors have to think about what climate change means for how they're going to deliver returns to you. And investors have been thinking about this for a number of years, like the Investor Group on Climate Change was established in 2005 to start 
investors engaging with this issue. It's not necessarily new, but what has also become increasingly important for investors is that the recognition that climate change is a material financial risk to long-term investment returns has become central to the conversations of the financial regulators and the central banks around the world. And this graphic is taken from a recent report that was done by the network of central banks that, that is dealing with this issue, which includes the Reserve Bank in Australia, which really characterises why climate change matters to the financial system. So climate change is a big issue. It's going to affect the entire economy. It's foreseeable as a risk, like, you know, despite what you see in Parliament and other places at times, you know, this is a real issue that investors can't ignore. It's also irreversible, but it's also path-dependent. So the actions that we take today will determine outcomes in 20, 30, 40, 50 years' time. And all of those things then translate to both physical risks and transition risks. And they're, they're, the two are different. One is really about what does climate change mean for this particular infrastructure that we've built on the coast? What does it mean for disruptions to particular industries and particular regions? So the physical impacts of climate change and how they might impact on the investment chain. The other part of it is around transition risk. So as we move to a lower carbon economy, and that can be driven by regulation, it can also be driven by consumer preferences, it can be driven by economics. All of these things will impact on the assets in the current electricity system and new investments in the energy system globally. So all of those things then translate to an impact on the financial system and therefore how much money you're going to have in your bank when you retire. The other thing about climate change which makes it quite important is for investors is that it's a systemic risk. And as the Reserve Bank has said here, that it's a first order risk to the Australian economy. And I've just stuck this graph up as an example because... You know, I've been dealing with climate policy for 30 years and I don't believe anything an economist says in terms of projecting either the cost of climate change or how much it's going to cost to reduce it. But what I, why I put this up is that it, it shows the, the direction of travel, which is what economic models should be used for. And what you see here is pretty much across the entire world, substantial declines in economic activity as a response to climate change. And this is under our current trajectory. And why this matters to investors beyond the concern about whether you know we'll have stability in particular regions in the world is that if you're a universal owner like an investor where you basically own every part of the economy or invested in every part of the economy by just divesting from a particular asset does not fix your problem because you're exposed over here whether it be through the physical impacts of climate change or through other changes that go along with the transition so investors have nowhere to hide from the risk and that's why they're becoming increasingly engaged. So where does Paris fit in all of this? And I think the Jeff Summerhays, who's an executive at the Australian Prudential Regulatory Authority, which is basically the financial regulator who, who tells my members what to do, summed it up very well, is that the Paris Agreement sent a long-term signal to the market about the future direction of government policy. Because every five years, governments come back to the table, put stronger targets on the table, and the end point which everyone is looking towards is net zero emissions. So unlike the Kyoto Protocol, which sort of... <coughs> We had a period for 2010, effectively, and then we've got the period for 2020. We had to have an entire negotiation around moving from the first commitment period of the Kyoto Protocol to the second commitment period of the Kyoto Protocol. The Paris Agreement is now an overarching agreement which covers all countries, which sets in place a durable framework to ratchet up action through time. And investors, despite governments wanting to ignore this exists sometimes, investors can't. And if you look at the world, if you think about the scenarios that people talk about, about the future world, like you've got your business as usual, which is four degrees, or you've got your one and a half two-degree world, the most likely scenario my members think about is not either of those two scenarios. The most likely scenario they think about is the world keeps pottering along and then it panics. 
And this is where you're starting to see an active conversation amongst many people in the investment community about managing the risk of a disruptive response. And this is also the biggest concern that we're actually starting to see from the central banks globally, that it's not, we're not going to have a nice smooth transition to one and a half, we're not going to have the catastrophe which is four, but we're going to have a scenario where governments slowly move and then they panic. And that's the scenario which I think everyone would love to avoid. So what are investors doing? So at the core of it is their fiduciary duty to make sure you get returns. And there's three broad areas globally where investors are engaging on this issue. One of the most significant is probably the work that investors do with engaging directly with the companies they own. So if you think of my members, they might own 25% of the Australian Stock Exchange. So in every one of those companies, those investors can have a direct relationship with that board, with the CEO, and say, okay, how are you managing your climate risk? How are you preparing for the transition to net zero emissions? And what strategies are you putting in place to make sure that when you leave board, that we're not left carrying the can in 20, 30 years' time because you've made a stupid decision today? And this is now a global activity that's been coordinated amongst investors globally to get companies to get on a path to one and a half two degrees. The other area is policy engagement. Obviously, governments have a huge role in directing capital across the economy. We want to make sure that they're putting in place smart policies to make sure that you can retire with dignity. Not going so well at the moment. And then, of course, there's what investors can do themselves. And this, this ranges in, depending on the size of your investment, the nature of your investment. So the big universal investors, for example, like your Australian Supers and others, will focus much more on the, on the company engagement side, where your smaller boutique investors will do screens on fossil fuels and other things. So it really depends, but regardless, what we're seeing from the surveys that we do of our members is that climate change is now a mainstream investment decision make in mainstream investment decision making. It's no longer a simple thing over here where it's an environment issue or it's, a, it's on the side. It is now central to the decisions that boards, trustees, companies are making about how they're managing and delivering long-term return for their members. So what would we like out of Paris? And I've just taken this as a snapshot, so we coordinate with our colleagues globally. And what came out of that most recently is that we basically had investors which represented around half the world's assets under management, saying to governments, you need to strengthen your 2020 targets because the gap between what you're doing and the gap between where we need to be is very, very large, which goes to the point that, that Anna was making. They also said we need governments to put in place long-term frameworks. Too often do we focus on short-term outcomes. We need longer-term outcomes because we are trying to invest over the long term. We want to know if it's okay to build a piece of water infrastructure over here or over here, because if we make a wrong decision, it's going to be really bad for us, but it's also going to be really bad for those communities. The other really core point which I'll call out is just a strong support for making sure that we bring communities with us as we make the transition. There are going to be winners and losers in this transition, and there are going to be people in communities who need support. And that's just not from as we transition out of coal, which is inevitable, but also as we have to transition out of agriculture in certain parts of the country. So it's making sure we have the robust governance frameworks in place at a national level to engage and work with those communities and come up with a collective plan to manage the transition as we go forward. Great. Well, th thank you. Thank you, Owen. Uh, well, that was great. And that's the link between the, um, what I think of as the, the grey men in suits. I'm sorry, I'm being very gentle today. But the, the, the people who are really not prone to catastrophising and doing all the things that um, you know, certain politicians are accusing school children of doing, but that, you know, they really, by a pursuit of the interests of themselves and, and, and the people they represent, come to some pretty grim conclusions and therefore need to act on it. But then recognising that you, that action will not be successful if communities aren't properly engaged, and that takes you straight back to the politics, mm. because there's no doubt that some of the most biggest source of political inertia on this front is because politicians can't see the way through to protecting the interests of the communities that elected them. And so somehow that whole conversation has to be turned on its head, I think, in order to be 
successful. So that was a really useful link that you drew. So drawing another link, um, on my right, I have somebody who can, I can only describe as a champion of climate change action in a number of settings and somebody that I've known and admired for a long time. This is something is a, of a reunion. As um, I mentioned, the Irwin was deputy CEO of the Climate Institute for a decade, and his CEO was none other than John Connor, who's been a great leader in this field. After, after the Climate Institute, John went to, to Fiji for a couple of years to be executive director of the Fijian government's COP23 president. COP23 presidency, so Fiji was president of, the, uh, of COP23, so, so John led the secretariat there, which was, uh, I should imagine, a very challenging but also fantastic opportunity to be engaged in, you know, really in the workroom around the COPs. So very interested to hear about the work that you did there. But now John, John's come back to Australia as the chief executive of the Carbon Markets Institute, and uh, so his membership also has particular expectations and interests around the COP. So again, I'll invite John to just to do some scene setting around why, why this COP's important and then, and then we'll come back and I'll ask the whole panel a question and then open it out to the floor. Now it's time for Climactic Community Corner, where we play voice messages sent to us on Facebook. We're opening up this space for the community to share events, news, thoughts, feelings, all sorts. If you've got a message to share, just send it to us at Climactic Show on Facebook or hello at climactic.fm. Hey, this is Belinda from the Southeast MP Engagement Group. We engage with MPs, our elected representatives, in local, state and federal government to express our concerns and demand action on climate change. We meet once a month to write letters and plan meetings with the MPs. Our next meeting is at 6pm on Tuesday, the 10th of December, at the Port Phillip Eco Centre in St Kilda. Bring a device or pen and paper so you can join in the letter writing. We provide the support and resources to get started. For more details, email seastmpeg at gmail.com or we'll see you there. To find an MP engagement group in your area, or if you'd like to start your own, Check out the Take Action page on the Climate for Change website. That's climatefrchange.org.au. Thanks, Mark and the Climactic Collective team. Hi, Climactic listeners. I wanted to inform you of an awesome campaign that has just been launched called Better Buds. Basically, in the seaside town of Warrnambool here in Victoria, volunteers have collected over 20,000 plastic stem cotton buds off the beaches in the past two years alone. And how do they get there? They get discharged via sewage ocean outfalls after being flushed down the toilet. And just like straws, they really suck because they harm marine wildlife. Not to mention they're gross and unsightly. With so many biodegradable alternatives available on supermarkets and chemists in Australia, we are urging everyone to change to a plastic-free option. So I'm asking all of you to please support our Better Buds campaign and help us get plastic-stemmed cotton buds off our shelves and off our beaches once and for all. Let's all be better buds to our oceans by taking the Better Budge pledge on social media and nominating our best buds to do the same. Find more details on Facebook at Better Buds 2020 or Instagram at Better Buds underscore 2020. So, John. Fabulous. Thank you, Chloe. And um, I've had the, the joy of working in Fiji, which is a great time to take two years out of um, the Australian policy mess. 
uh, to get into the international negotiations. Um, and as I said to the Attorney Gen Fijian Attorney General, who was my boss at the end, I said it was a privilege and a horror <laughs> uh, to, to do this because it was so hard, the complications, getting involved now. They're actually uh, in, ending up using the Fijian model now because Fiji's COP was in Bonn in Germany. And so Chile are now <laughs> going to have their... Um, uh, uh, cop in Spain, so it's a bit of a similar thing, but lots, lots of challenges. I like to start my talks with this graph. Now, just to remind people of the scale and the urgency that's involved, but also of, if we are serious about one and a half degrees, that we are talking about a significant job, not just of getting the neutral neutrality, but we're, getting, we're talking about negative emissions uh, and climate repair. And I think there's actually a, a more motivating, motivating narrative mm. around repair than there is around neutrality or even sustainability. So I think that's something we need to think about as well. And when I took the job of my speech, I said this is the greatest repair job in human history that we're part of and you guys will be part of. And I think that's a far more motivating thing than you can achieve neutrality, yeah. So, but obviously this also highlights uh, the challenge and being in Fiji really brought home how important this is. So, I mean, I, I went to villages on their third sea wall and you get to experience how close and intimate the linkage is with the sea and, and marine life and fisheries. They've already had to move four communities and villages because of the rising sea levels and inundation of croplands. They've got 40 more in a pipeline. And this is moving whole towns and communities, changing all of culture and society into this very difficult way of shoehorning this into the social challenges, the transition challenges that Erwin spoke to are really significant and need to be worked through. And why I delighted, Peter, when you were saying, talking earlier about your, your energy club here, not just being the Electric Engineers Club, uh, but also being um, one about the, society, the social influences and, and connections that you need to have when you think about that. I'm now, I'm now the Carbon Market Institute. It's a very unique organisation. I represent all of these members, and it's across the spectrum of those involved in the carbon market and, and in some way, form or other, involved in the transition. And this is through from the... Um, people doing some of that drawdown, the carbon farmers uh, like Aboriginal Carbon Foundation and Green Collar and others, all the way through uh, the spectrum of service providers, banks, financial institutions, advisors, through to the, big, the, the bigger emitters, the Woodsides, BHP, Shell and others. When I got the job, actually my last night in Fiji was the Australian election night, and so I almost talked <laughs> the boarding pass. But, um, uh, um, We're so, so glad you didn't. I was a little terrified that one might have flight from some of those bigger members. We're off, off the hook for another three years or so. But what's been really important to, to discover is that the sense of getting on with it. These guys know that this transition is coming in some shape or form, and partly they're being motivated and driven by a range of uh, factors including the investors, the financial regulators that Erwin talked about, and it talked about the science and the technology that's becoming more and more affordable, so it's actually the, the, the raw economics of this is changing some of these, these things, but also the community. And so it's fascinating to have discussions. I've had senior leaders from uh, overseas from amongst one of these interna international firms talking about how they're aware about the Extinction Rebellion, how they're worried about this, the state of disruption. They, view, they know we're on the wrong trajectory and if we're still on that way about 2030, they know that there's anarchy, nationalisation, all sorts of things that are coming there. So, and a key focus for me in messaging is that we are going to have disruption and there is a sort of inevitable policy backlash that's going to happen internationally. And so many of my members are fully aware of that. It's something we need to promote. And in fact, the Paris Agreement is important in that process. And Erwin described 
that the beauty of the Paris mechanism is that we're not we're negotiating slabs of the whole agreement every few years. This has now been set and you have the, the ratchet mechanism which will bring countries and their constituencies and the debates within them back to the fore each five years. So we'll hopefully have a bit more of that next year as the start of the Paris Agreement. But then there's a global stock take in 2023. And then in 2025, countries to come up with their next targets and policy set called the Nationally Determined Contributions, NDCs in the UN speak. And so I think that next phase is actually going to be amongst the most interesting as, as, as we think about that because there's a, a bigger potential there um, for a big ratchet and a big, big movement. And, and there's a whole body of work being done by colleagues, I guess, of the IGCC and others in, in the UNPRI. It's a grouping of responsible investors and it's called the Inevitable Policy Response and they're looking at a bunch of those. So it's worth Googling that and having a look at the, the work that's coming there and doing some uh, modelling and other things there. The Market Institute, as I said, I've been now five months. I'm running out of excuses about um, the, the, the granularity of it all. But, um, and it is actually quite incredible, the, the granularity that's there in terms of carbon farming, the Emission Reduction Fund, how it's run. Uh, Chloe was a clean energy regulator. We're talking with them about the, just how it actually the operations works. Australia, you can say a lot about its broader policies and directions, but is actually internationally well respected for the architecture of measuring emissions, the framework of trading uh, and transparency that, that's involved in the emissions reduction fund now was in the carbon pricing mechanism. So it's actually important. We have important things still to offer and, and, and a lot to offer to other countries developing carbon markets. The Paris Agreement is underneath the United Nations Framework Convention on uh, Climate Change. It was negotiated in 2015. At that time, part of the reason why it actually came through and was ratified as quick as it was is there was a re realignment of national interests that the countries recognised. We've since been hit by blindsided by the truck of Trump and Brexit, uh, but I do believe the fundamentals underneath that are still there. That's why all the other countries are still staying in, even as we saw yesterday, Trump um, saying the US will, will come out. The key thing, obviously, the, the key thing that's still to be worked out to make the Paris Agreement fully operational is what's called the, those elements of Article 6 underneath the agreement, which allow for trading internationally, uh, tradable mitigation outcomes. They didn't want to actually call them carbon units or credits or whatever, so that was the global speak for trying to not necessarily say that. And within Article 6, there's market and non-market ways that these, these might um, operate. But it's a, it's a key way in which we can trade the various offsets, the various emission reductions, and, and be more economic about that. There are other international programs that are out there which are still being being used. Before we go to the Paris Agreement, I want to mention the Kyoto Protocol, which is a protocol of the developed with response requirements and targets on developed countries, not developing countries, but developing countries were allowed to trade with uh, entities within developed countries. And so that created these things called um, the, the Certified Emission Reduction Units, the CERs. And so that's been, been traded under the, a clean development mechanism. One of the big questions is about how they can be brought across into the Paris Agreement. Subsidiary to that is actually that question of, that you may have heard about the Kyoto carryover. And so that's actually still not clear whether a country can carry over their outperformance of the, their Kyoto targets. Remember, it being just developed countries that had targets. So that's one of the things which is still to be worked out and uh, whether it may be worked out in Spain or subsequently kind of needs to be worked out by 2030 at the end of this uh, NDC. So it's not absolute make or break, but it's certainly um, added pressure for Australia 
at the moment the only country that's talking about using that Kyoto carryover. Um, we may come back to that in questions, but um, uh, so they're, they're, that's part of the, the important negotiations right now. There's a framework of other voluntary uh, ways in which uh, companies are involved in doing offsets. That's a voluntary ones there. I just throw up interesting because this is really emerging now. Ways in which the marketplace is already pricing in carbon in, in the intensity even in, in certain products. And so there's even, I think, today talk about markets in aluminium. So c companies are now much, looking much more, trying to be cleaner and greener. And now there's actual trade in terms of aluminium, for example, which might be less emissions intensive than some aluminium that's made from coal-fired power plants. And so there's actually trades within that, those things there. One of our most recent members has uh, traded units in responsible gas, they call it, which is, doesn't use the actual chemical fracking. And, and so, there's, so there are it's an interesting range of gradation of things that's happening and happening amongst my membership. It is important to um, understand amongst the gloom here of going backwards in carbon pricing mechanisms, though, that slowly, but all too slowly, we are seeing ranges of mechanisms around the world which are either putting a value on carbon or either putting a cap and uh, a price on, on, on that carbon. So there's a range of those still happening around the world, some of which actually learned from Australia's experience one way or the other. Others are, are still working for or just choosing for direct carbon taxes and the like. So significant activity around the world, but unfortunately only covering around 20% of global greenhouse gas emissions at the moment. But interesting, I, I kind of weep when I read this, uh, this chart these days because uh, uh, in those markets there's a range of prices. One of the key things which killed Australia's carbon pricing mechanism, which was up and running and effectively running in Australia, and um, the economy was growing, pollution was going down, what was this concern that we were the biggest price in the world? But we're seeing these other markets now well established, and the EU and others, uh, and even New Zealand, with higher higher prices than were operating at that at that time. On the far left is actually the remnants. That's those. Uh, uh, units yeah. under the clean development mechanisms, there's some going around 33 cents, and partly that that um, there was a big growth in those, and there was linkages into the Euro European marketplace. There was some concerns around some of the dodginess of some of those, and the EU shut the door on those, and general other reductions meant that there was less focus on that. Some of those are still low. There's been an improvement in those, but so some of those are traded at varying prices with varying companies. The second on the left is $14. That's the last auction that was had here in Australia with the Emissions Reduction Fund, and that was a pretty disappointing auction, but it was actually one of the higher prices that they've had. We can go to that more on question and answers if you like. There's a sense of the, um, the market prices. I just want to then finish on um, a slide about the benefits of, of cooperation, and this is um, some figures from the International Emissions Trading Association. So why do we want to have these markets? Why do we have this trade and the like? It's just, it is classic economics uh, that you can, that, that some countries and jurisdictions are better placed than others to do some emission reductions and, and provide some offsets and, and certainly to provide some of those negative emit drawdown uh, emissions. And this is a big feature of Ross Garneau's newest book, but, but he's certainly been talking about it for some time. Australia is blessed with many opportunities uh, in terms of its natural ecosystems its geologic, and as well as geological for, for that. And the fact is if we can work together and do that for some and share those things, like we should trade in many, many things, uh, then, then we can reduce the cost of that and that makes that more politically feasible. And if you actually then direct that, then, then you can actually further the emissions reduction. That all depends on how the rules work, and that's, the, that's part of the task that's ahead of the negotiators in Spain and beyond. Mm. So I'll leave it at that. 
Well, uh, th thank you very much. That was that was great, and uh, it's good to be reminded that there is actually a carbon price in Australia, even if it's not paid by very many people other than the government for uh, taxpayer pays. the taxpayer pays it, but it is being it is being established. And I think also that that story around the CERs just shows where you know markets do work totally on the iron rule of supply and demand and really when you think about what happened there a lot of supply was brought on and I guess there's questions about the quality of the supply in the expectation of demand which then didn't come forward and so it's not surprising that the price collapsed. Whether it's worth trying to revive that or to tear that up and start again obviously is part of the discussion that needs, needs to be had. So what I'd like to do is just ask each of the panel, panellists briefly having set the scene and given the background and, and, and these different perspectives on the issue of ways of achieving climate action really. What one or two things are you and your, your organisations or your members most hoping to see come out of COP25? So I might start with you, Erwin. Well, obviously Article 6 negotiations are important. It won't surprise you coming from a bunch of financiers and bookkeepers that my members like markets. So having effective liquid markets globally would be would be useful. But I think probably more importantly, as we head in, as John mentioned, that we're sort of heading into a phase now where countries should be updating their NDCs and their targets. And we'd like to see some real strong political commitments, I think, from countries that they are going to, they intend to update their targets and do their 2050 strategies as we move into Glasgow next year, when the, the real heat will be on countries to step mm -hmm. up and think about their targets. And, and that's important from investors from my point of view, because as I mentioned, governments have set a long-term signal about the direction of policy in terms of getting to net zero emissions, but they're also sending a mixed signal because they're not putting in place the policies or putting in place the ambition to deliver that ambition. So we'd have, like to have the credibility gap closed so that investors can actually spend the trillions of dollars which they're prepared to do on fixing the problem. Mm, mm. And interestingly enough, I was, I was just speaking to, to a bunch of people today about investments and they were saying, you know, the real problem is we don't know where to put our money. So there's no shortage of money to That's be right. invested. It's where it goes and you can see the sense of that. So, Anna, you're not going yourself, but ClimateWorks is, and a lot of people that you work with are. So what, what would you like to see coming out of it? So our focus really within the COP is not so much all the formal negotiations, but the implications of them and then the events that happen around this conference. So this is a key point in the year when everyone gets together to talk about climate action, whether that's the business community, the investor community, or countries. So as well as sitting in negotiations and deciding you know, what Article 6 is going to look like, what the rules are going to look like, it's also about countries talk to each other about what they are doing and what they plan to do. And so the ClimateWorks International team works with people in Southeast Asia and the Pacific, so countries, but also other similar organizations to us, <coughs> to try and improve action. So we're working with the Marshall Islands about their transport plan and you know why is, the, why is transport in the Marshall Islands so important? Well, it's not only one of those countries that are made up of lots of islands, so how people get about is a real social issue. But Marshall Islands also is the kind of formal home for around about half of the world's shipping fleet because of the way the International Maritime Organization works. So a country like the Marshall Islands, how they do their transport how they, want, how they want to be ambitious around reducing carbon emissions from transport really matters. So we're going to help the Marshall Islands. And if we can go somewhere like COP, 
and we can discuss with organisations like ours, but also other countries, you know, who's doing what, what's best practice. This all happens alongside all these talks. Something like 20,000 people go to this conference. Only a small number of them will actually sit in negotiations. Everyone else, it's about knowledge sharing. It's about who's doing what. And it's also about changing the narrative. So I think it's why are we going? It's to learn from other people, to make connections, to talk about what we're doing, what we think is good about it. But it's also to change the narrative and to understand what works in discussing these, these stories with people. You know, what's worked in different countries, what might work at home. And it's easy to see the doom and gloom because we're at a very critical, urgent part, point in time. But you can tell stories. The hope is there. The technologies are there. The money is there. So how do we connect it up? And how do we make sure, as John said, that we bring people along with us so that you don't get a backlash? Mm. Thanks, Anna. John? Yeah, so we actually lead a business delegation. So we've got a number of companies who are coming along with us and our members um, from Woodside through to Green Collar that come... Uh, um, um, Farmers, uh, we've got a, one company called WEACT who's actually trading in some of those CDMs and uh, under the CR units there under the old scheme. So they're very interested in how it can be moved across. They're doing good work mm. in terms of providing clean cooking stoves in the Pacific, for example, which is actually um, uh, one of the ways which is being recognised. So uh, reducing kerosene and other uses. So they're all very keenly interested in, in seeing how this stuff is going to continue. Many of them thinking long term and, and actually ones that make the actual investment decisions to do the things on the ground that need, that need to happen, not just um, and it's important to have the money, but it's actually these are the guys, ladies, men and ladies who are doing the, the, um, doing the investment on the ground and making those decisions, putting in place the technology and those things. So they're, they're there to um, uh, see the direction of the talks, but... Uh, and it's a bit interesting how it's going to work out because we're still working out how that happens with Spain now in six weeks. But it is there is it's like a trade expo that go, that sits around the, uh, the the actual formal talks. So it's a joke. There's the cop wonks that go to the negotiations, and there's a, the cop tourists or cop traders that go yeah. to the other other bits there as well. So, but there are tens of thousands of business people making deals, mm. ma making this stuff real. So mm. We've got a few of those going for that. Yeah, it's a fantastic forum, isn't it? And uh, the level of engagement of civil society outside of the formal negotiations is quite astonishing and, and, and cheering. So I might ask them the same question. Uh, Monash is, is sending a first-sized delegation, uh, which is fantastic. And so we've got, we've got a number of people in the room who are going. So I'm just going to ask each of you what you're hoping to get out of it. So I might start with you, Georgia. We're having this discussion just like last week with all of the delegates that because there's the side events and then there's the negotiations, the negotiations and everyone was saying well you get so much out of the side events it's very interactive and there's so much going on and I was thinking oh I really wanted to go to negotiations and people who had been there before said yeah good luck trying to understand the language because there's so much lingo and it's so very very fast-paced so I'm really wanting to kind of understand a bit of a bit of the negotiations and also get involved in the side events. So I'm hoping to present some work some um, recent research that I've done along with Monash and with the ABC around climate change communication in the Pacific, actually. So I'm hoping to get that out and, yeah, just to sort of make as many connections and learn as much as possible while I'm there, mm. all in the space of one week. Yes, <laughs> it's, it's a huge event. I feel you have to be incredibly organised about how you spend your time and now that the, uh, the disarray, I guess, the little bit, it's going to be doubly hard in Madrid, but I'm sure it'll be fantastic for you. So, Remy, what, what are you hoping to see happen there? 
Yeah, similar to Georgia, it's my first COP, so there will be a lot of just understanding how it works and a lot of networking. But um, I'm with the Climate Change Communication Research Hub at Caulfield, and my focus for the COP will be around connecting with science communication professionals and understanding the different <coughs> climate change communication initiatives happening all over the world, and sharing what we do and understanding what they do and how we can collaborate to more effectively communicate a very complex issue. Mm. Brilliant. Well, we've, we've already heard a lot about you know, the, the need to change the narrative, to engage with people, to certainly move the execution from being simply about technology to being about communities and society changing. So that's having communication people going, I think, is completely fantastic. So we also had Yuga here, so be interested to hear from your, your perspective. Yes, my name is Juka, and I run the Global Challenges course at the Faculty of Science. Um, my own background is on the effect of rapid environmental and social change in human uh, societies. And one of the reasons I'm going with that background is really looking, as we go and look ahead to educational initiatives and what is going to be the most meaningful way to work with our students students in the future and what is what does leadership look like in a time of needing to make social change both from very much the scientific perspectives as well as legal and financial is looking to for example how can we identify the best possible stakeholders to connect with to not only bring that back for students at Monash, but also think about how do we critically need to change our traditional educational landscape so that students can meaningfully enter what is this incredibly this incredible complexity beyond just a series of technical knowledge because with as you even just year on year with COP, it's moving so fast. I think um, that would be something I'd really like to uh, get out of it. I'm very much echoing Anna's sentiments, sentiments there that summed it up very well for me. Mm. Uh, well, I do think that, that that's great. Universities are such a force for change. And I was thinking, as you were speaking about education, that as students leave the university and join the workforce, we would very much hope that they're going to be working for the members of Carbon Markets Institute, for uh, members of uh, the Investor Group on Ch Climate Change. So having people at all levels in those organisations who have a practical understanding of, of, of these issues and, and how um, action can be taken, that's going to change those businesses. So the role of the educator is absolutely critical in all of this. Peter, you're going. I am going indeed. Actually, I have the opportunity to be on the other side as I'm joining my own country delegation. And this will be this really the, the truth, as everyone says, that the, the exciting part is to be to attend all the side events. That's where the Monash is, that's where all the NGOs, and it's a really hard work back and forth on the other side. So I have this opportunity to really see if it's true and how it goes. And I know my, my focus will be really on the carbon carbon markets and trading mechanisms, which is really exciting for me because my PhD is related to electricity markets, just to see what, what mechanisms can you apply and how it's related. It'll be a great learning curve for me. Given that you're going to be there with the Latvian delegation, do you, what differences do you think there'll be in the way they approach the COP compared to the Australian delegation? Well, first of all, I have to say that there's really no such thing as Latvian dele delegation. It's part of the European Union, yeah. so they negotiate as a block and... I hope that's where all the ambition comes from. As, as you know, like European Union has a bit more developed carbon markets, electricity markets, and really stricter environmental rules. So I hope they will be the ones that are trying to push together with the small island nations and other parties try to push for more ambitions that we expect. But I, I think I can fully answer your question in four weeks or so. <laughs> well, I hope, I hope there's going to be a great report back. Yes, it's in, in, interesting. I mean, John was talking about the 
the, the infrastructure of the carbon market <coughs> that's still here in Australia and, and the, the recognition that there is that some of the instruments we have operating here, even if they're not terribly visible to everybody, are actually very well regarded worldwide. So the measurement system, uh, the National Greenhouse and Emissions Reporting System, is a very robust one. And I like to think that the natural infrastructure of uh, trading too is... It, it, we were on the brink of linking with the EU scheme. Things went a different way electorally, and so that didn't happen. But it wouldn't take, you know, in terms of actually the, the, the infrastructure that's there, it wouldn't take so very much. And so I'm interested to, start to ask, ask the question, whether, is, is that important now, trying to get a globally, you know, that was the original ambition, or is we really on a different pathway? John, what do you think about that? In linking markets? In linking markets. Yes, I mean, I have to say that now, but uh, I actually do believe it anyway, and, and that it is actually the way to make this, to open up the investment, to make it as, as efficient as, as possible, provide more opportunities. We often hear, I mean, I think, is it Exxon that says they want to have a, they agree with the global carbon price? They do. Um, BHP says it. A lot of them say it. Some, some of them say it, and, and that's, that's just some, some of them. Hmm. One of them, A couple of those you mentioned are actually members, but Exxon I partly do it because they think they know it's not possible to have one global carbon price hmm. that comes magically into appearance. But it's going to happen like the quilt. So um, how we do those linkages and how we do them between countries, how we have those experiences, build the confidence. There have been some bad experiences in the past, like I talked about with the European scheme and... Others, we had references to the Borat units um, uh, during the election and uh, others and things. Mm. But within that, it's still actually really a great deal of knowledge that can be shared. And it's also not just a matter of just trading these units, which don't really seem, which seem very abstract. But, for example, we can be doing a lot more even with New Zealand in, in um, how we're cleaning up agriculture and how we recognise the emission reductions in particular areas of agriculture. So it's the actual methodology, some of those processes. You can learn and share and build and build that knowledge. And so that, that's... That has uh, both those economic, but also diplomatic benefits. We're also t we're building linkages with the Chinese mm. scheme and things as well. And so building, you're building broader networks of trust with other countries and trading partners is an important opportunity mm. as well. Mm. I'm glad very much. Did you want to comment on that? I mean, the only thing I would say is that would in my wonky times, I would have loved a global carbon market with a you know nice consistent price. But there are many, many ways of doing it. And so at present, certainly Climate Works, in terms of our Australian work, we look at sectoral change, we look at businesses taking the lead. So this idea that you work with coalitions of the willing who are prepared to take leadership in a sector and who try, can try and get that price premium that John was talking about for having you know, a better, cleaner product. And so there are many ways to get there. I think at the moment, a global carbon price is a bit far away, but that doesn't stop there being action. And then you can put it all together. It's not probably the most economically efficient way, but it's perhaps the more realistic way. Mm. All right, so questions from the floor. Wendy. Hello, Wendy Cox from the Mez course. So obviously in Australia, there's been a policy vacuum. It's been going on for quite a number of years now in this space. So I've just had this thought bubble and just the recent talk yourselves have just been covering just slightly. And what I'm thinking is a more concerted effort of industry to do its own thing independent of the government. In setting its own carbon price, act like a self-regulated industry, particularly the finance sector, and just basically set its own carbon price and operate as an internal company carbon price or whatever agreed across a marketplace and have a way of regulating it. As you said, you've already got the methodologies. There's more of a will there, but I don't see light at the end of the political tunnel. So, Well, I think it's certainly 
happening anyway. One of my colleagues said to me the other day that business and government are currently on different paths and they are actually not moving together. I mean, we are actually already seeing many of John's members, our members, getting on with doing things. And it, but it's not necessarily visible because it's not necessarily in the sectors that we often talk about politically. So, for example, amongst my membership, there's a bit of a, an arms race going on about who can get to the lowest emissions property portfolio the quickest, because they can see good returns in the property sector at net, and, and trying to, we're going to be net zero by 2025, we're going to be net zero by 2030. So, and they can deliver good returns and good social outcomes for, the, for their members. But in areas like electricity, it becomes much more complex because it is an integrated system where if you pull one lever over here, you can break something over here. So you do actually need a coordinated plan, I think, to manage the transition in the electricity sector. Because, and that government has to play a role in that because you know, they are the ones who set the rules. So I think in some sectors of the economy, we can certainly do that. And I think in some other sectors of the economy, it's much harder, like electricity. And I think that there are, the other thing I'd highlight is that Delivery of a carbon price doesn't necessarily need to be regulated, as, as you've said. And I would not be surprised that over the next few years, we do not see a global carbon price emerge from the action of the financial regulators, yeah. absent of government policy. Interesting. Because they'll be requiring us, John's members, to basically factor in a carbon price into their, into their business strategies. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, businesses are behaving, will have to behave as if, there, and some of them already are, as if there was a yeah. carbon price, even if it's not explicitly being paid. And that, that is definitely changing decision making. But that is the issue. Like if you think of carbon price already exists in the Australian economy, it's just anything from $150 a tonne to 20. Yeah. And that's not a good place to make a business decision. Thanks. And there was a question here. Thank you for... It's, it's a real privilege to have such a high calibre of speakers here at Monash. So thank you very much for coming and speaking. The trend in graphs is really concerning, obviously. It's what, is, what needs to happen won't just happen naturally. It requires sort of like expedited responses. So I guess going on from the sort of stuff that Wendy was talking about, I'm, I'm interested in the relationship between uh, universal owners and policy. So on, on the one hand, like when the policy is not playing a role, then we're seeing the universal owners step up and, and do all these their, their own initiatives. But mm. on the other hand, it, the, the speed of those responses by those universal owners are not sufficient to meet the, uh, the, the targets that we're, we're looking mm. to meet in terms of like 1.5 degree uh, horizon. So I, I guess, do you have any comments on how do, we, how do we manage this relationship in Australia? Well, I many of before, we are in this diverging paths. Um, and um, but I think one of the most positive developments has been that the universal owners, as you say, and the prudential regulators are recognising that. It is also important to recognise the other part of the equation is the community within that. And ironically, the, a lot of the rise of the focus from the institutional investors actually happened because the collapse of the Lieberman, Markey, Waxman, whatever it was, bill, bill mm. in the US, which is it got through the lower house but didn't get through the Senate in terms of a, a carbon trading scheme there. and activists there said well the community then said well where do we go next and so they actually started to follow the money and um, uh, and I think we are now seeing similar things that are happening with things like the Extinction Rebellion and other things that are, that are really rattling people in the senior board so um, that, that's a, evoking certain responses from some of our own politicians right now as well so that's the other equation of things that, that, that will, will be interesting to see over the next year or so. Mm. I just want to add one thing, and I, and, I, and I try and say this every time that I, I talk about climate change, because I've had the unfortunate pleasure of working in climate change for 30 years, so most of you probably weren't even born. But one of the things I always reflect on is that if someone had told me 10 years ago that we had nearly peaked global emissions, 
I would have laughed at them. Mm. We've actually come a long way in this space in the last 15, 20 years without actually even trying. And, and we've nearly peaked global emissions. If we can do that without even trying, imagine what we could do if we tried. And that's what I always like. That's, that's what gets me out of bed in the morning. That's a completely excellent thought. I'll, I think we've got time for one more question at the, at the back. Um, yeah, hi guys. Um, thank you all for your know, insightful discussion. It's really great. So my name is Cree and Sasha and I are here. We're actually attending the delegation as um, part of um, Global Voices, who is an NGO that sends, sort of gives opportunities to young people to go and attend the conference. So I guess I want to ask, like, youth in the climate space has become pretty topical in the last year. And we've got people like Greta who are going to be holding, like, a pretty big stake at the negotiations. But I wanted to ask about where do young people stand at the COP? I mean, obviously, they're not involved directly in the negotiations. But what can we bring to the table, especially as Australia's youth that's going? Mm. I think it is good whenever, you know, anyone, whether that's young people or people from, you know, the countries that are going to be most affected bring a kind of fresh perspective and a bit of reality to the negotiations. Like, I can find those sort of textual negotiations endlessly fascinating for all sorts of, you know, the psychology of it, the technical side of how language works, all of that. But you can lose perspective very, very easily. And having those outside voices is what brings back the urgency and brings back the why is there a negotiation in the first place it's because it matters to people and so any way in which you can bring that out rather than getting people to obsess about two words and which one's stronger than the other works I think. Yeah very important it's been great I've seen a number of the waves of the global voices come come through and um, and seeing them come and be involved. Prue is now working in Michael McCormack's office of all, all places at the moment. So uh, And so it's a great little outfit and some interesting people come through. The youth groups are important. I think Anna, you said that perfect as part of the reason why I was keen to work with Fiji is actually put the human face of this. And so it's very important to keep that represented. There is a formal grouping called the Youngos um, uh, that's actually active in the, uh, in the discussions as one of the recognised observer groups. I'll be the first time going as a bingo and as a business uh, 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 group. So um, there's Ringos, which are the research groups, and there's uh, other, others. In the, um, I forgot what the actual... Engos, of course. Engos, yeah. um, Engos um, the environment groups and the, and the like. So there's actually a formal place in the architecture, and there is actually meetings that happen around that which set the tone. So there's a conference of youth that happens now. They're all a bit annoyed at the moment because that was all in Santiago and everyone booked their trips and things and they probably can't get to Spain. All the South American youth were going. And there's a little bit of interesting criticism going on. But Greta is a, a white Western um, getting help and funded to, to get there, but how's the developing world the youth going to get there as well? So a whole bunch of things. But it's a very important dimension, particularly for the reasons Anna mentioned. Yeah, I think this issue kind of ebbs and flows in terms of how significant the voice of youth is and, and how um, it's always significant but how effective it is in, in sort of capturing attention and uh, changing attitudes. I think we're at a moment here and it's not just because of Greta but for all sorts of reasons where my generation kind of abdicated rather and the, the, the voice that is around hope and a genuine belief that action can deliver results is definitely in, you know, that's in the spirit of youth. I absolutely agree with what you're saying, that the solid, sort of global solidarity is a very important part of this, and perhaps it's not coming through as much 
specifically. But again, it, I, I would really encourage people to listen to that podcast, Mothers of Invention, because one of the great things about it is that it has a lot of connection with First Nations peoples and, and, and just draws the connection between different ways of campaigning and expressing a voice, but going to action. And certainly from my point of view, what I see is, is it's, it reminds me, it reminds me of my own youth when you know, I was, you know, I was a teenage activist around anti-apartheid, nuclear disarmament, feminism, obviously. And, and, and I think the way that the, the community saw things really did shift. And I think this is what's happening again, because there's such a sense of obligation and um, there's an articulation of passion and an articulation of urgency that really only younger people can bring. So more power to you. It is going to be chaotic because of the shift, but I think it'll be... You know, I saw Paris as being the moment where business sort of crossed that threshold, and I think now what we're seeing is kind of the voice of youth. Being, this is the moment where they're crossing that threshold of influence. That's my sense of it. They, you... Enjoy. Enjoy, yes. <laughs> You can fix it. We stuffed it up. I think that's the general sort of message. I isn't haven't it? given up yet. So. No, 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 neither have I. Neither have I. And I mean, I think that's the other thing that, that we, we, we that there are plenty of people of, of our generation who haven't given up at all. But there's, you know, there needs to be different shifting, shifting, shifting the message, shifting the language is going to be very important and getting, getting accelerating action. Peter, over to you. Over to me. I wanted to add, like Global Voices, Monash Energy Club, all the ECOT and student organizations, hopefully have a chance to make the future. And yeah, with that, I also would like to say many thanks for all speakers and wrap the, up the event. And yeah, please join me in welcome. <laughs> Please also stick around for some snacks and coffee. Also, don't forget to join Monash Energy Club and follow other events we will organize next year. And yeah, many thanks for coming, especially in these times, which is the exam period for all the students. But I hope that was a good sort of break of your studying and just, yeah, having a good overview of COP. Thank you. Thank you all. It's actually still going on. It's just a small invitation to join for the highest altitude dance party. We haven't decided what to do on the New Year's. You can join me for a three-week expedition trying to climb up the highest mountain in the southern hemisphere. Just carrying with me a solar panel, a wind turbine and a battery. Everything you need to power up your speaker. And then just enjoy a bit of, yeah, good music. If you have any suggestions for the songs, please come send over. So yeah, just a bit of uh, a different, what I would call a challenge and different type way of uh, celebrating New Year. Thanks, guys. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Climactic, the flagship podcast of the Climactic Collective, a podcast network dedicated to lifting the voices of the climate community. You can find out more about the people behind Climactic and all the shows we produce at climactic.fm. We are a social enterprise podcast network, and we greatly appreciate your support. You can find a link to our Pausable where you can support us directly in the show notes of this episode or from our website. Thank you for listening. And from the whole Climactic Collective, keep up the great work and take care of each other in these climactic times. The Climactic Collective. Collective.